Hello. Hello, this is the audio version of the Better Strangers article for Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. The title is, Why Mutual Aid is One of the Most Important Concepts to Understand in the 21st Century. It is written in red by me, Matt Hirschberger. Just as a note before I start, uh, I'm trying a new thing this year. Uh, I was doing kind of themed months at the end of last year, and I enjoyed that, but I realized that I was limiting myself by doing just like a few of those at a time. So instead, I'm kind of designing the next um, few months as like courses that are deep dives into things that I've done a lot of reading on and that I find very interesting. It comes from the uh, idea of journalism, which I have always ascribed to, from Bill Moyers, who said, a journalist is someone who learns in public. So I've decided to just write a lot about the stuff that I've learned a lot about. Uh, we're doing mutual aid for the first one because I think it's kind of important given the year we've got ahead of us and some of the challenges we've got. Um, but uh, I've also, I'm going to be doing a course on human rights, a course on the philosophy of Alan Moore, um, one on the ethics of travel. Uh, I've got a lot of cool stuff coming up, um, so uh, stay tuned. Anyway, here is the article. If there was one silver lining to the dumpster fire pandemic year of 2020, it was the resurgence in the public eye of mutual aid. Mutual aid hadn't gone anywhere, of course. It is something that the vast majority of humans engage in every day, and its proponents convincingly argue that it is older than the human race itself. Anyone who has lived through a catastrophe of some sort, whether that's a terrorist attack, a war, a wildfire, a tornado, an earthquake, or a hurricane, is also familiar with it, even if they can't put a name to it. This is because humans spontaneously reinvent mutual aid every time shit goes off the rails. The concept is encoded in our DNA. What was so special about 2020 was the scale of the catastrophe. There has not been a time in most people's living memory when the disruption to everyday life was so abrupt and so ubiquitous. Suddenly, billions of people were in dire need of some form of help or assistance, and in all but the richest neighborhoods, the victims of the catastrophe were impossible to escape. In America, COVID-19 strained the country's already abysmal social safety net to a breaking point. During the pandemic, 60 million people turned to charities for food. Charities and government programs couldn't help everyone, though, and into those gaps stepped mutual aid programs like community fridges and food-not-bomb-style hot meal giveaways. While the government dragged its heels on suggesting masking to protect against the virus and re redirected depleted stocks of PPE masks to hospitals, spontaneous communities of seamstresses and knitters produced thousands of homemade masks, which they gave to everyone in need. And uh, just as a side note, my favorite mask from that period, which I still have, came from one of those, uh, those knitting groups. In much of the retrospective lore of COVID-19, the pandemic is depicted as an event that proved to many that humans can't be trusted, focusing on the spread of misinformation, vaccine conspiracy theories, and needless public opposition to masks. The resurgence of mutual aid tells a quieter story, but if listened to carefully, it teaches the opposite. In moments of awfulness, humans are kind to one another, and we don't have to rely on uncaring elites to take care of ourselves. So let's give a definition of mutual aid, and let's refer to the great arbiter of modern knowledge, Wikipedia. This is a quote. Mutual aid is an organizational model where voluntary collaborative exchanges of resources and services for common benefit take place amongst community members to overcome social, economic, and political barriers to meeting common needs. This can include resources like food, clothing, to medicine and services like breakfast programs, to education. These groups are often built for the daily needs of their communities, but mutual aid groups are also found throughout relief efforts, such as in natural disasters to pandemics like COVID-19. End quote. 
For the next several weeks, Better Strangers will be focusing on the concept of mutual aid, particularly on how it's a useful tool for those who are struggling with political despair, and how its core ethic provides a new path forward for a better future. Articles will include, um, first, uh, next week, what mutual aid looks like in real life, uh, then disaster utopias and how they work, um, then how COVID can be seen as a high point for humanity, not a low one, uh, how people use mutual aid today, um, an interview with the creator of a community fridge in Sacramento and her struggle to keep the project afloat in a NIMBY neighborhood, mutual aid in libraries, and how nonprofits are leaning into mutual aid in the 2020s. But for today, we're going to discuss origins of the term, starting with the coiner of the phrase, Pyotr Kropotkin. Pyotr Kropotkin in the battle against survival of the fittest. Within a couple decades of the publication of On the Origin of Species, Charles Darwin's ideas about biology and evolution were being co-opted by regressive social movements to support racist and colonial policies. What Darwin had described as natural selection was morphed into survival of the fittest. And this phrase was not just applied to biological systems, but to societies and races as well. Darwin's ideas were revolutionary and exciting, and presented in the context of survival of the fittest, they seemed to offer a natural justification for some humans dominating others. Britain's upper class were no longer brutal classists and racists, but were forward-thinking men of science dedicated to the advancement of the species. This strain of thought developed in all sorts of horrific directions. It offered justifications for colonialism, for racism, and for draconian attitudes towards the poor and the destitute. It also led to the development of eugenics, which was fundamental to Nazi and American right-wing ideology in the early 20th century. Some progressives, like the American William Jennings Bryan, used this right-wing tendency among Darwinists as a basis for arguing in favor of creationism. But European radicals found their opposition in the far more coherent work of Pyotr Kropotkin. Kropotkin had been born into an aristocratic family, but after his mother's death at age three, he was raised by the servants and serfs of the household, giving him a lifelong preference for the underclass. In his 20s, he was stationed in Siberia for a military posting. While there, he established himself as a talented geographer and also became politically radicalized. This was in part because Siberia was where the dissidents and free thinkers were sent into exile, but also because while mapping the Siberian terrain, Kropotkin regularly interacted with the local peasant farmers, whose decentralized and cooperative form of social organization he held in great esteem. For extra income, Kropotkin translated the works of Herbert Spencer, the coiner of the term survival of the fittest, and he began to develop a counter-theory. He wrote in the first paragraph of the resulting work, quote, Two aspects of animal life impressed me most during the journeys which I made in my youth in eastern Siberia and northern Manchuria. One of them was the extreme severity of the struggle for existence which most species of animals have to carry on against an inclement nature, the enormous destruction of life which periodically results from natural agencies, and the consequent paucity of life over the vast territory which fell under my observation. And the other was, that even in those few spots where animal life teemed in abundance, I failed to find, although I was eagerly looking for it, that bigger, bitter struggle for the means of existence among animals belonging to the same species, which was considered by most Darwinists, though not always by Darwin himself, as the dominant characteristics of a struggle for life and the main factor of evolution. End quote. Instead, what he saw nearly everywhere was cooperation. He wrote a series of essays that were compiled into his seminal book, Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. His core argument wasn't all that controversial. It was that while competition was indeed an important driver of evolution, cooperation within species was at least as important to that species' survival. 
This was a radical departure from how cooperation and altruism had been thought of by political theorists before him. The 18th century writer Jean-Jacques Rousseau had argued that what motivated altruism and cooperation was universal love. Kropotkin didn't believe in anything so intangible. Cooperation persisted among species because it was practical, because it actively aided in a species' survival. Indeed, in places like Siberia, where resources like food and shelter were scarce, cooperation seemed like a better way to survive than competition. This cooperation, or mutual aid, it seemed to him, was the main reason that species managed to thrive. But Kropotkin extended his argument further. In human societies, spontaneous mutual aid was the rule rather than the exception. He examined cultural studies of the indigenous peoples of the world and found countless examples of groups working together to survive and thrive. He tracked mutual aid through history, from the guilds of the medieval era to the then-contemporary Paris Commune, and found that no matter how competitive and unjust our societies, human beings can't seem to stop cooperating and working together for mutual benefit. Now, Kropotkin titled his, his work modestly. Mutual aid was a factor in evolution, not the factor. But the implications to the reader were obvious. Humankind, indeed all animals, were not just competitive, they were cooperative, and much of the time cooperation was the more effective means of survival than competition. If Kropotkin was right, and in the 122 years since the publication of his book, it's, it's safe to say he was, then we do not need to accept right-wing arguments that competition, cruelty, and domination are what we must build our societies on. We could choose kindness and cooperation instead, and not just because that's the morally right thing to do, but because it's the smart and practical thing to do. I, I'm sorry, I still haven't figured out how to do footnotes properly with this, um, but I do have a few things I wanted to add. Uh, I mentioned Darwin um, and the survival of the fittest. He himself occasionally approved of the term survival of the fittest in some situations, but still in a biological context, not in a social or a political one. Uh, he was an opponent of slavery and did not believe that survival of the fittest should be the only rule in building good policy, but believed that interdependence and care for one another was important too. Uh, he was also, for his time, more open-minded than the average wealthy Englishman about the indigenous people of the Americas. Um, but he was uh, sexist, and he was not particularly progressive in his attitudes towards the poor. So, you know, uh, don't lump him in with the social Darwinists who were using it for right-wing agendas, but uh, also, you know, he doesn't deserve that much credit for, for being like, you know, a, a progressive stalwart. Another thing I mentioned was William Jennings Bryan. Uh, if you ever had to read uh, the play or watch the movie Inherit the Wind in, uh, in, in grade school, that is about the Scopes Monkey Trial where he argues against Darwinism and he's kind of portrayed as this like bumbling oaf in that. But uh, in reality, he was actually kind of a really great progressive stalwart um, in the early turn of the century. Uh, he ran for president a ton of times. Um, he was a, a fundamentalist Christian at the time, but he kind of, you know, used that Christianity as a way of like fighting for the poor and for, you know, the working class. So, you know, I think he deserves more credit uh, than he's usually given. Uh, and then finally, a thing I wanted to note is that the term mutual aid was not coined by Kropotkin, but by the Baltic zoologist Carl Kessler, who put forth the theory of mutual aid as the main factor of evolution in an 1879 lecture. Um, Kropotkin was in attendance at this lecture, and he decided to further develop the theory when Kessler died before he could do so himself in 1881. Um, the book Mutual Aid was a, originally a series of essays published separately, um, and then it was compiled into a book in 1905. Uh, just a note that I haven't added into here. Um, Kropotkin's one of the most renowned anarchists of all time. Um, he uh, was, he did actually go to the Soviet Union during the, um, the early days of the revolution. He was unimpressed with what he saw the Bolsheviks doing because it was totalitarian in nature. Uh, and actually his funeral 
um, early on in the revolution was the last time in the entirety of the Soviet Union that the anarchists actually got together in public and were able to, you know, organize. Um, that marks the end of that era. And uh, the Soviets, of course, um, crushed the anarchist movement uh, pretty much everywhere they found it um, for, uh, for, well, for as long as they existed. So coming next week, uh, next week's article will be on what mutual aid looks like in the real world. Um, I'll go into some of the basic principles, how it looks different from charity and philanthropy, and through some examples of how people make mutual aid work in real life. Um, and I also, I hate to do this, I am going to paywall every other article in this series because I want to be able to spend a lot of time working on these, these mini courses, and I can't justify doing that unless it's making me money. Uh, the good news is that there are seven-day free trials enabled on my subscription page, which are uh, linked to in, in the, uh, the uh, show notes. Um, and it's only $5 a month if you, if you do decide to pay. Uh, if you want to be super cool and you're already paying, uh, you can donate a subscription to someone who can't afford it. Uh, I tend to, I'll, I'll either ask if anyone wants it and give it to the first person to respond, or I give it to the person who's engaging the most with my free articles. Um, and then uh, everything I'm talking about in these articles, for the most part, is available in the Anarchist Library. Uh, and which has, uh, which is a website that has a massive back catalog of free radical texts, and you can find everything I'm talking about that and more on the site. So it's not like the uh, the information I'm giving is you know closed off from you just because I'm doing a paywall every now and then. Uh, you can go and find it yourself free. They do offer at the Anarchist Library. You can download stuff as PDFs or EPUBs. So if you have an e-reader, you can download it, a lot of it on there. Uh, it's really an amazing way to get um, a really really cool uh, radical education, and it's astounding how much they have on there. Um, so excited to do this next week. Uh, if you've got any feedback, please leave it in the comments or send me an email, send me a message, whatever you want. Um, and, uh, be sure to, uh, if you ha aren't a paid subscriber, please, uh, sign up next week and you can hear about how mutual aid works in the real world.